Ezekiel 43 is the apex of the book. This is the culmination of all of the prophecies of Ezekiel right here. Check this out. Ezekiel 43, verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. And they have defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the plan. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statutes, and all its laws. And write it in their sight, so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes, and do them. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on top of the mountain, all around, shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house." Father, as we open Your Word this morning, I do pray for revelation for every heart today. That Lord, in Your good time and in Your patience and Your kindness, that You would reveal to each of us what we need to understand today. We may not all come out of here understanding the same things, and that's the marvelous thing about Your Word, Father. For we know Your Spirit speaks through these pages, even as Your Spirit speaks into our lives and into our hearts. And Father, we thank You for the promise of Your appearing. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. From the days of Solomon to the days of Zedekiah, those final days known by some as the First Temple Era, the primary entrance into the temple was by way of the Eastern Gate. It's also been called the Golden Gate. Or the beautiful gate, Acts chapter 3, verse 2. We believe that's probably the beautiful gate is that same eastern gate. In the uh, Jewish book of oral tradition, the Mishnah, it says that a priest could stand in the nave, which would be the holy place of the temple, could look directly out the door of the sanctuary, straight out this eastern gate, when the gate was open early in the morning, and he could see the sun rising in the east up and over the Mount of Olives. Perhaps that's part of the reason it's referred to as the Golden Gate. For looking out that gate in the sunrise, it's a, it's a beautiful picture. But greater than the sun shining in all its strength through the East Gate, the Shekinah glory of God in the person of Messiah will return. 
And the Bible is explicit about this. That Jesus will walk through this gate, will return through this gate. The glory will come back. And that's the whole point of this vision, is the return of the glory of God. He's coming back. Right now, the east gate is one of eight gates on the wall of the old city. Seven are still in operation, and if you visit there, are heavily trafficked. Not just by people, but by cars. It's amazing. You try to walk in and out, in and out of some of those gates, and those cars, there's just enough room for these little European-style cars to get in and out. And if you're walking through at the same time they're coming in and out, in and out they do not slow down. 30, 40, 50 miles an hour coming through these old, ancient gates. It's amazing. Seven are in operation. One gate is shut. The east gate. Shut up so that no one can enter. No one can exit. When did this happen? Back in 1536. 1536, the Ottoman Turk, Suleiman the Magnificent, commissioned an overhaul of the wall running all the way around Jerusalem. And in that overhaul, he walled up the eastern gate with 15-foot-thick stones, creating a completely impassable brick facade. You still have the outside, the outline of the gate, as you see up in that tiny little picture behind me. That's the eastern gate as we see it today, walled up completely. They also dug a Muslim cemetery in front of the gate to defile it and to discourage a Jewish king from coming through it. And so the eastern gate today is shut. Now, some of you have heard me share this story before. In 1969, an archaeologist by the name of James Fleming was digging outside of this gate, looking around, inspecting the eastern gate, making uh, study notes and findings. It had been raining the night before in Jerusalem, and the ground was soggy and loose. And suddenly the ground gave way beneath him, and he fell eight feet and found himself, like Indiana Jones, knee-deep in bones. As he looked up, he saw something amazing, and it would take 14 years to get it published. Finally, ultimately, it was published in Biblical Archaeological Review in the January-February issue of 1983, page 30. And this is what James Fleming saw. Directly beneath the Golden Gate itself were five wedge-shaped stones neatly set in a massive arch spanning the turret wall, the remains of the earlier gate to Jerusalem. Directly below the Golden Gate one that apparently had never fully been documented. So when you today look at that gate, the eastern gate, that is not the original gate. It was a gate that was built probably four or 500, I think, A.D., but it's also the gate that Suleiman then uh, bricked up. But the actual gate, the gate through which Jesus walked, is directly below it. After that 1969 incident of Fleming falling through and trying to get this published and and raise awareness of it, Muslims filled up the mass grave, they cemented over the top, and they surrounded the area with an iron fence. Can bricks or iron fences keep Jesus out? How about death? A Muslim cemetery there. Can death keep Jesus out? Anybody know how Jesus dealt with handled funerals? He just didn't put up with them. 
Mark chapter 5, verse 1, taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And he raised the, the synagogue leader's daughter from the dead. In another time, he's walking into the city of Nain, Luke 7, 14, and a procession, a funeral procession is coming out. There's a widow who has now lost her only son. She has no one in the world. He comes up, it tells us he touched the coffin, making himself ceremonially unclean. And the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead son of the widow rose from the dead in that moment. Which I guess would raise the issue, then would Jesus really be unclean, because now the guy's alive. Well, he was dead, but he's alive now. John 11.43, who can forget when Jesus called out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And of course he had to say, Lazarus, come forth, because if he hadn't, everybody would have come forth that day. But the truth is, stones and bones are no match for the Messiah. And there is no amount of trying to put up a blockade that could keep Jesus from returning if Jesus has determined to do so, and he has. And he says, I'm coming back. And it doesn't matter what your theology is. I'm coming back. It doesn't matter what you think is going to happen. I'm coming back. And it doesn't matter what bricks you put up. It doesn't matter what bones you put in the way. It doesn't matter how you try to block that return. I am coming back at the time that has been determined by the Father. And there ain't no stopping Jesus. And He is coming through the eastern gate. Which one? I think the one underground. Myself. I believe... And the Bible gives us hints of this, that Suleiman's gate will not stand, I think, in massive earthquakes in the time of the tribulation. The gate behind me will be blown apart. And the gate, the real eastern gate, that is now underground, will be lifted up. Well, that's just bizarre. Psalm 24, 7, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Well, that's just David kind of giving, you know, a metaphorical picture of, you know, opening the doors for the... Listen, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives, the mount will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move toward the north, and the other half will move toward the south. Zechariah 14.10 says, All the land will be changed into a plain from Gabah to Ramon south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And so He's coming in. And He will return through that gate. Verse 1 of chapter 43, He led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. Now listen, before He returns, He had to have departed. For anyone to return, they have to have at some point left, right? If they're coming back, then they were here at one time and they've gone away. Well, Ezekiel was eyewitness to the departure. What you could describe as a hushed, holy, heart-wrenching procession. We studied this back in Ezekiel 9-11. through The prophet described the departure of the glory of the Lord. He saw what no one else saw. He was privileged in that vision to experience, to see firsthand the lifting of the glory of God from the holiest place to the threshold, chapter 9, verse 3 tells us. From the threshold then up to the east gate, chapter 10, verse 19 tells us. 
And from the east gate on up to the Mount of Olives, chapter 11, verse 23 tells us. Side note, Ezekiel saw that, nobody else did. And tragically, that can happen. People are often far more aware of the entrance of the Holy Spirit and the glory of God than they are of His exit. Far more aware when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in your life than you are when you have quenched the Spirit. Because usually by the time we have quenched the Spirit in our lives, we've already wandered quite a distance. Tragically, the people of Israel didn't know. Had no idea the glory had departed. Well, Ezekiel 11.23 tells us, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. That would be the Mount of Olives. Rabbis who have studied this enumerate more than ten stages of the departure of the Shekinah glory of God. Ten different stages of His leaving. And one rabbi we talked about months ago, Rabbi Yonatan, claimed, quote, three years and a half the Shekinah glory stayed upon the Mount of Olives in the hope that Israel would do penance, but they did none. Three and a half years. Now, I don't know where he gets that. I don't know what it's based in, but I do think it's interesting. That's roughly the length of Jesus' public ministry. And the prophet Haggai, speaking of the second temple, had this to say. He said in Haggai 2, verse 9, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. How can the latter glory in the second temple be greater than that of the first temple when the first temple had the Shekinah glory of God and the second temple never did? Because Jesus walked in the second temple. The soles of His feet walked through those courts. Jesus Himself was there, God in the flesh, in the second temple. And if you think about it, there's a really interesting parallel between the departure of the Shekinah glory of God from the first temple and the departure five centuries later of Jesus. Like the glory of the Lord leaving the first temple from the Mount of Olives, so also Jesus left the second temple ascending to the Mount of Olives. And Acts chapter 1, verse 11 says, This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way that you have watched Him go into heaven. Remember the scene? The angels are there, and the, the apostles, and they see Jesus ascending. And they're just standing there open-mouthed watching Him. I don't know for how long. Watching Him go. You ever watched a balloon, you know, float higher and higher and higher? You you watch it until you can't anymore. And I think they were standing there for a while because the angels finally said, Guys! (laughs) What are you looking up into heaven for? He's coming the same way you have seen Him go. He will return in the same way. And by the way, as Zachariah said, to the same place. When Jesus returns, the prophet says, His feet will set down on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And now, then, as Ezekiel tells us, then His glory will come down across the Kedron Valley, up and into the temple through the east gate. He returns in reverse. The same way we saw Him go, we're going to see Him return. There was a departure of glory. There is the return of glory. Let's think about that this morning. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Same voice, by the way, that John hears when he sees Jesus in the Revelation. 
and the earth shone with His glory. Now note takers, some things to jot down. We start here with the appearance. The appearance of glory. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's not just picturesque, it's literal. He's coming from the east as the lightning flashes in the east. And it's interesting to me that Jesus' glorious return also follows the same pattern of His triumphal entry in His first coming. That all four Gospel writers describe the event very similarly. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. All four reference this. They connect the dots to another prophecy given 520 years earlier. Jesus' triumphal entry before the last week, before His crucifixion, as He rode that donkey, remember, into the temple. He comes up from the Mount of Olives, across and up into the temple, therefore through the eastern gate in that day of glory. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah prophesied that in 520 B.C., roughly 52 years after Ezekiel prophesied his final vision here in Ezekiel 43. Remember, that, and that was 572, and then as Zechariah prophesied in 520. Remember, as you go toward the B.C. A.D. line, you count down, and then after that you count up. I know that gets confusing sometimes, but 572 is when Ezekiel prophesied, 520 now Zechariah prophesies, behold, he's coming mounted on a donkey. Well, that's a very different picture than what Ezekiel gave some 50 years or so earlier. Ezekiel's was glory coming in to the eastern gate and Zechariah's like a dude on a donkey. How can that be the same? Two very different scenarios. One guy is coming with salvation but in humility. The other is coming as a glorious king in return. Well, which is it, Lord? And you and I now know it's both. It's both. Jesus in His first coming and Jesus in His second coming. And I can tell you this. Zechariah foretold Messiah's humble entry in His first coming. Ezekiel saw the return of glory in His second coming. And He won't be coming around the mountain on no donkey the second time. It's a very different scene. To ride a donkey indicated time of peace. If a king were riding on a donkey, he's in no hurry to get anywhere. Riding on a horse is a very different thing. Revelation 19.11, John says, I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. It is glory and judgment in the second coming of Jesus. Humility and salvation the first time. Glory and judgment the second time. And He comes not as a humble servant to suffer, but as a glorious King to rule. The appearance of glory. Secondly, note this, the evidence of glory. The evidence of glory, verse 3. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when He came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kabar, and I fell on my face. Notice how Ezekiel ties in this vision with all the previous visions of glory. He says, go back and compare. It's like that glory, that first vision I had. It's 
like the vision I had when he destroyed the holy city. All through all these prophecies that I've been writing. It's this same kind of amazing, glorified, stunning vision. And he says, I fell on my face. Listen to this, Ezekiel 1.28. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so is the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice speaking. Ezekiel 3, verse 23. He says, So I got up, I went out to the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory which I saw by the river Kabar. And I fell on my face. In Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 4, he writes, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw on the plain, and I fell on my face. Chapter 44, verse 4, He brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Wow, Ezekiel the flat-faced prophet. Always falling on his face before the Lord. Six times the prophet records that he falls on his face. Four of those before the glory of the Lord. And you know what's interesting? He joins Abram in this. Genesis chapter 17 verse 3. Abram falls on his face before the glory of the Lord. Leviticus chapter 9 verse 24. The children of Israel fall on their faces before the glory of the Lord. Daniel chapter 8, verse 17. Daniel the prophet, we will see this, falls on his face before the glory of the Lord. Matthew 17, verse 6. Peter, James, and John fall on their faces before the Lord. And finally, John himself, in John 1, verse 17, falls on his face before the Lord. Which tells me something. Flat faces are the evidence of God's glory. You know when God's glory has been there because the forehead is a little flatter, the nose a little more mashed, the face has hit the ground. What are you saying, Rick? No one can stand in the face of God's glory. No man, no woman can stand. And there's a lot of bravado in the world today. A lot of people standing against the Lord. I could... Go down the line and give you plenty of names. List out celebrities and and known people standing before the face of the Lord. I love was the recent news article talking about uh, brilliant minds saying how the world was going to end, and they were all wrong. You know, men like Stephen Hawking describing here is what's going to happen to the planet in my vast knowledge and intelligence, and you're an idiot. Did our pastor just call Stephen Hawking an idiot? Probably, yeah. Okay, yes. In that, he misses truth. And that every person will fall before the glory of God. I mean, it's going to blow all the great intellect right out to sea. Philippians 2, verse 10, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we read that verse a lot. Are you tired of it yet? (laughs) Good. I plan on quoting it a few more times. Lest Jesus should come first. I quote that though to ask the question, and I've asked this before, why wait? Why would anybody choose to wait to fall on their face before the glory of Jesus Christ in abject fear then rather than in hopeful faith now? If you're going to fall before Jesus, do it now. Let now be the time where you give your heart to the Lord and you bend the knee. 
the evidence of glory in Ezekiel's prophecies are totally consistent. That's one of the things I love about the Scriptures is the internal evidence within the Scriptures, even within the the single book itself. As Ezekiel describes these visions and writes out these prophecies over time, there's an absolute consistency to the appearing of the glory of the Lord. To what happens to him, he's on his face. To the description itself, again and again and again, he gives this evidence of his glory. You can call it a divine cohesion throughout the book of Ezekiel from beginning to end. And understand that the prophecies of Ezekiel from beginning to end are all about the glory of God. That's the point of this book. That's the point of this prophet's calling is to bring glory to the Lord. Go on, verse 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. That would be the holy place, or just outside the nave perhaps. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Number three in your notes, the entrance of glory. Or you could write the acceptance of glory. In fact, write them both. The entrance and the acceptance of glory. Now I use both words for a very specific reason. Because simply by entering the temple, God is accepting the temple. That when the glory of the Lord entered the temple in the first temple period, when Solomon dedicated the temple on that marvelous day, the very fact that his spirit entered the temple was saying he accepted the temple. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That entrance and acceptance are the same thing when the glory of God comes in. We saw it in the first tabernacle. We saw it in Solomon's temple. We even saw it in the second temple that Jesus graced it for those who would say, well, if the Shekinah glory didn't come into the second temple, did God ever really accept it as a legitimate temple? Maybe He didn't. Well, we know He did. Why? Because Jesus worshipped there. Because God did enter that temple. And for the Lord, entrance into a temple means acceptance of that temple. God enters no temple He has not accepted. In fact, His entrance confirms His acceptance. Now that should be really exciting news for us. Let me say it again. His entrance confirms His acceptance of this temple. If God would set up residency in my heart, in my life, He has accepted me. Entrance is acceptance. John 14.17, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And this is such important... I'll say theology, doctrine, it's so important as Christians to understand this point. That His entrance means His acceptance. I've heard from too many Christians over the years who wonder about whether or not God accepts them. His entrance means His acceptance. If He has entered your heart, He has accepted you. Period. The story's over. No more conversation. Turning your Bibles over to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So important to understand this. 
I, I can't think of a more confident place to be than living in Christ. And yet so many people who claim to be in Christ lack that confidence. Worry about their status before God. Where they are before the Lord. Well, let Paul explain something to you here. Chapter 8 of the book of Romans, verse 9, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. By the way, not your righteousness. (laughs) His righteousness because He's in you. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, not to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being... Listen. All who... Listen. You listening? All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father! The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. How do you know you're a child of God? The Spirit tells you. He testifies this to your heart. There is a confidence that comes. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, but you lack the testimony of the Spirit, you lack the witness of the Spirit to your own heart, maybe you missed the process. Maybe you misunderstood what this was all about, what's really going on here. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying it is not gained by your good deeds. It is not gained by your goodness. And that's something that we've got, that we have to get out of the flesh to understand that. Because so many of us in our lives think, okay, I want to get into a relationship with a person, so I start to be nice to the person, and I try to please the person, and I do good things for the person, and then they kind of like me back. And then we kind of get into a relationship. But boy, if I cross them, if I start to do bad things, that relationship is over and they walk away. And that is exactly how it works in the flesh. But we're not talking about the flesh. We're talking about being a Christian is living in the Spirit. And it's a completely different thing. You don't come to God and say, okay, I've done these things. How am I looking? Like Brian this morning, you know, your hair's combed. You look pretty good, guys. You got yourselves dressed without your wives, gentlemen, whose wives are at the retreat. Good job. God's not looking at whether or not your hair's parted. Thank you, Lord. He's not concerned with the deeds you do. This is not something gained by hard work. It is not something that is inherited by the flesh either. People say, Lord, Lord, my family were all good Baptists. So? In my family were all good Presbyterians or good Lutherans or or good Catholics. First of all, there's no such thing as a good Baptist, a good Methodist, a good Presbyterian, a good Lutheran, or a good Catholic. No such thing. Boy, I'm glad I grew up in the Reformed Church. (laughs) Someone might say. 
There's no such thing. You don't inherit from your family in the flesh. John says, and he says it so clearly, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name. That's where it starts. I'm not sure if I have that confidence, Rick. Do you believe in His name? Yeah? Do you? Yes or no? Do you believe in the name of Jesus? Okay, then you've started the journey. Yeah, but I didn't do anything. Right. But He did. And He says, come believing. Come believing. It doesn't happen by osmosis. In other words, it does not seep in through the church pews or seats. It's not how you get it. Well, I've been going to church for years. I don't care. Well, that guy stopped going to church. Is he not saved anymore? It's a relationship. It's a relationship. Jesus says it's for those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. The assurance that you've been accepted by God comes only as you accept His grace through faith in Jesus and He enters into the temple of your heart. And He brings the assurance and He brings the confirmation and His Spirit brings the confidence that you belong to Him. But Rick, I still have shaky moments where I don't feel like I belong to Him. You know why? Because you're thinking in the flesh. And it's very simple. We can all get into the flesh. Wander around my house going, I just don't know. I'm, I'm worried. That's because I'm looking at me. I've said this before. If you look at yourself, you're lost. If you look at Jesus, you're saved. If you trust in yourself, good luck. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, your salvation is secure. And so the confidence comes as the Spirit confirms it in our own hearts. And your part in the process is, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe. I believe. The entrance, the acceptance of glory, if Jesus has entered your heart, you are accepted. And that conversation needs to end and you just need to trust Him. Number four. Number four, the residence of glory. The residence of glory. Look at verse six. Then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. Now stop right there. Does a voice have soles on his feet? Does your voice have little souls that carry your words out to people? This is not a metaphor. This is the place, God says, where the soles of my feet. But I thought God was glory and spirit. You know where we're going. God is also flesh. Because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has souls on the bottom of His feet. Jesus. And so the entrance into this temple is not just the glory, but it is the person of God in Jesus Christ. A voice doesn't have souls on his feet. Jesus does. And Jesus, by the way, is, I believe, this man. Note that. I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man is standing beside me. Voice is coming from the temple. The man is standing beside me. The voice says the souls of my feet will enter the temple. But this is a voice and this is glory. And here's the man. Here's the man. 
And Rick, you think that's Jesus? I'm sure it's Jesus. Why would you say that? I mean, that's just weird. That's just weird. God's talking from the temple, and Jesus is standing right there beside Ezekiel. That's weird. Can you give me other examples of God speaking while Jesus is just standing there? Yeah. His baptism. Mark three, Mark, uh, Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3. How about the transfiguration? Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. How about in Jesus' final week? John 12, verse 28. He says, Father, glorify Your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. And Jesus is standing there. The voice comes out of heaven and says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered, and others were saying an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now stop for a moment and think about that. Here's Jesus standing there, voice from heaven, speaking about Jesus, glorifying Jesus. And there were people standing there who went, Well, it's going to rain? It's thunder. There were other people standing there who went, Ooh, I heard a voice. Is that an angel? And then Jesus says, and it's interesting, He said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Yeah, but Lord, half the people just thought it was thunder. And then the others just thought it was an angel, and you say this voice was for their sake. What's this about? In all three instances, at His baptism, at the transfiguration, and in the final week of His life, in all three instances, it was faith that gave ear to the voice of God. That those who heard God speak heard because they had faith. Because they were already in a relationship with the Lord. They already had a faith relationship. Listen, you cannot hear the voice of God if you don't have faith. You won't hear, you'll hear thunder perhaps, but you will not hear the voice of God without coming to Him in faith. It doesn't mean there isn't evidence all around us. There is. And it doesn't even mean that there isn't acceptance by Him. What it means is if you want to hear Him, you have to believe in Him. And until you walk in faith in Him, you will not hear Him. God wants us to learn the language of faith. And so we hear the Lord declaring that He's going to take up residence in the temple, that the soles of His feet will literally bear Him into this dwelling place through that eastern gate, And by the way, you know what that tells us? There is no separate palatial estate in the kingdom for the king. I think this is really cool. That from my understanding, the temple itself will be Jesus' house. Will be where he lives. That's his house. There are other chambers, you know, for the priests to eat and to dress and do the things they need to do. And there are other buildings around there. And there will be other structures and homes all throughout the world in the millennial kingdom. Jesus' house is the temple itself. And it makes sense. He keeps calling it the house of the Lord. He will take up residence there. I think that's amazing. Number five in your notes, the reverence of glory. The reverence of glory. Beginning up, Picking up in halfway through uh, verse 7. It says, the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. And they have defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. 
Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. What's that all about? He says, put away their harlotry and put away the corpses. What's he talking about there? The harlotry is easy. It's idolatry. Idolatry throughout Israel's history with God has been referred to as harlotry. It's prostitution. You're prostituting yourself with false gods, leaving me as your husband and going out after these other gods. And so that's, that's a simple one to understand. But what about the king's corpses? They have defiled my name, he says, by the corpses of their kings when they die. And that's a little trickier to understand. Some believe it's a reference to idolatry again. It's just kind of doubling up on idolatry being a bad thing. You know, the corpses of the kings, referring to dead idols. But notice the word for corpses there, peger in the Hebrew, is specifically corpses of men. It never has to do with animals. It never has to do with animal sacrifice. It is used literally of the corpses of men. Of a man's body when he dies. It's very specific. Fourteen kings of Judah were interred in royal sepulchers right next to the temple. Which, by the way, included Manasseh and his evil son Ammon. Interred in royal royal, uh, sepulchers there by the temple. 2 Kings 21.18, 2 Kings 21.26 talk about Manasseh and Ammon. And again, there are 14 in all. How would you like a cemetery in your backyard? See, I saw a poltergeist in the 80s, and I do not want a cemetery in my yard. Neither does the Lord. Because, my friends, throughout the Bible, death, which came into the world as a result of sin, is defiling it's defiling. The priests were told, Leviticus 21, verse 1, Speak to the priests, the Lord said to Moses, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people. The high priest wasn't even allowed to be in any kind of ta- contact with, with the death of his parents. God said the dead body is defiling. Why, Lord? Because the dead body is the ultimate picture of sin. That's where sin goes. That's what sin does. And God requires a clean house, not a defiled house. But right there on the same holy hill that the temple was, their threshold next to his threshold, their doorpost next to his doorpost, were the sepulchers of these dead kings. And God says, put them away. You're burying your kings here? And you might say, yeah, but I've been in some of the great old cathedrals in Europe. And you go in there to worship and there's, you know, graves of famous kings and former people in there. It's defilement. It's defilement as far as the Lord's concerned. Because Jesus didn't come that we might have death. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Amen? Amen. And Jesus is the God of life. He is about life. And when it comes to the house of the Lord, He requires a clean house. Now, notice this. Wednesday night we were talking about this. Ezekiel 40-48, through the whole thing, details the temple complex. Uh, Ezekiel 40 through 42, really in specifics, talks about cubit by cubit by cubit the measurements of the house and the measurements of the chambers and the galleries and the guard rooms and, and all the, the implements for the temple. And the, there's a big building right behind the temple to the west. No one knows what that's about. And all these different things are detailed. 
very, very specifically. In fact, so specifically that a lot of people get to Ezekiel 40 and go, cubit by cubit by cubit, okay, let's find something. 43, that's interesting. (laughs) And completely miss the amazing beauty of what God is doing here. But a question came up, and I'm going to come back to that amazing beauty in just a second, but a question came up Wednesday night afterwards. A person came up to me and said, okay, he mentions guard rooms. Nine times in Ezekiel 40, the guard rooms are described, cubit by cubit, how large they are, where they're going to be, the space in between them. The guard rooms. And this person said, why are there going to be guard rooms around the temple complex in the millennial kingdom? What are the guard rooms for? It's the time of perfect peace. Jesus dwelling, residing in the temple. If you think someone's going to come rolling through the Kedron Valley in a tank and somehow get past the east gate, you got something coming. <laughs> Not going to happen. War will cease. Beat your swords into plowshares, I recall Scripture saying. A time of perfect peace. What do you need a guard room for? And several of them around the Temple Mount complex. Why? And I'll tell you why I think. It is not to guard against attack. It is specifically to guard against the invasion of impurity. That there will be people stationed in the guard rooms to be sure that anyone coming up onto the Temple Mount and entering into the presence of Jesus Christ and all of His glory and holiness is prepared to do so. Dressed right. With the heart right. And not bringing defilement up onto the Temple Mount. Ezekiel 42 verse 20 also talks about the fact that a wall, the wall going all the way around the Temple, this huge wall spanning the entire complex, is there to divide between the holy, which is the complex itself, and the profane, or literally the common. If you're going to step onto the Temple Mount and into that complex in the Millennial Kingdom, you better be holy when you come on there. And the guards, I think, are going to make sure that you are. Excuse me, can you tie that tie? Thank you. (laughs) No, it's not going to be about ties. But it's going to be about the holiness of the heart. The point is, next to Jesus, even the best of us, at our best, are profane. We're not as good as we think we are. If we stand by Jesus, His holiness makes that clear. That's why we need grace. That's why we need redemption. It's why we so desperately need His sanctification in our lives. Now, listen very closely to these last few verses because they are the key. Verse 10. Verse 10, As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. If they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its design, all its statutes, and all its laws. And write it in their sight, so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes and do them. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. Number six in your notes. The influence of glory. The influence of glory. Why does God spend the last great prophecy of Ezekiel paying such minute attention to every little detail on the Temple Mount? Right down to the last cubit. 
This is going to be this cubit. Even to a cubit and a hand breadth, as we talked about Wednesday. It's not just a cubit, it's a cubit and a hand breadth. Make sure you get the measurements right. I understand Ezekiel 43, and as a matter of fact, I think I've said this probably with every book we finished, I probably would have ended the book differently. If it was me, in my wisdom and vast knowledge and eternal glory, I would have ended with chapter 43. You know, come to the end of Ezekiel 39, the Gog, Magog, and Vision, but here's what's going to come after that. Boom! The coming of glory. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you. Good night. But not the Lord. He spends nine chapters talking cubit by cubit by cubit about the temple complex and then about the specific land inheritance of the twelve tribes of Israel. In the middle of it, yes, we see the glory return, but it's a short section. And then there's all the rest of this. Why, Lord? Understand this. The Lord gives enough vision to bring Israel godly sorrow and repentance. And then, if they have that sorrow, He shows them the rest. And that's how it works. That's how faith works. I'm going to give you vision. Note this in verse 10. He says, show this to Israel. Describe the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. Hey, the temple is coming. There's going to be another temple filled with the glory of the Lord. His feet, He's going to walk right in here. He will be present. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome? And as they come to understand His presence among them again, The idea is that it would bring about a godly sorrow. As might happen here, if I told you and you believed it, that Jesus was our guest speaker this morning. I think some people would be thrilled out of their minds, but would probably come crawling in here and sitting in the back just to make sure it's going to be cool. The really arrogant ones would sit right up front. Sorry, guys. I think some people wouldn't come at all. They would be sitting at home saying, I can't go. Jesus knows what I did last week. I can't go. Jesus knows what's in my heart right now. I can't, I can't be in His presence. I can't be there. Godly sorrow. When we start to recognize in light of His glory how truly shameful we are. But godly sorrow brings about repentance. Worldly sorrow, you just sit there and you wallow in it and that brings about death. Godly sorrow brings about repentance. And God says, I want the people to know I'm coming. And I want them to see the temple. Describe it to them. Just enough so that they are sorrowful. And then He says... If they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, exits, entrances, designs, statutes, and laws. Give them the whole thing. All I want is for them to recognize their place before me. And once they do, they can have it all. And that's exactly how faith works. It's a beautiful picture of it. God says, I want you to read the blueprints until you realize how much you need me. And if you read these blueprints, His Word, cubit by cubit, verse by verse, line by line, I want you going through this until you realize how desperately you need my redemption and my forgiveness and my grace. And when you realize that, guess what? I'm going to show you the whole thing. I'm going to let you understand far more 
than you ever thought possible. But it starts with realizing your sorrow over sin. Proverbs 13.15 says, Good understanding gives favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard. You know what? God recognizes that. A sin-filled life is a hard life. It doesn't make your life better to choose foolish things, to do sinful things, things you know are wrong, things you know are hurtful. It makes your life miserable. And God knows that. That's why He hates sin. The way of the transgressor is hard. Paul said in Romans 6.21, What benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Think back to the sin choices you've made in your life and how have they benefited you today? How is your life better for the foolishness of the past? Which is why I'm so thankful that when we come to the Lord, He says, forget the past. Let's wash that away. You don't want to wallow in that stuff anymore. But again, the moment we get it, the moment a person expresses genuine faith in Jesus Christ, guess what He does? He opens the gate. He widens the gate and the glory starts to pour in. And He reveals Himself in ways you couldn't have imagined. The more we consider the things of God, the appearance of His glory in Jesus, the evidence of His glory all around us, His entrance, His acceptance, His residence, and the reverence that His glory demands, the more we understand that, my friends, the more we come under the influence of glory. Under the influence of glory. Cubit by cubit, verse by verse, moment by moment, prayer by prayer. And that is why I believe He takes Ezekiel and anyone who will hear on such a detailed tour of the coming temple so that we today might come under the influence of His glory now before that great and glorious return then. For the King will soon return. The gates will be lifted up. With the ancient doors, the entire world will fall flat on its face before the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, i got one last thing to tell you. For today, as of today, the eastern gate is shut. Right? Whether the one above ground or the one underground is not looking good. Okay? But the one above ground is shut. And I find this so interesting that Suleiman bricked it off and shut it up and thought he was exerting Muslim authority. Not going to let no Jewish king come marching into this city while I'm ruling. Brick it up. Ironically, by doing that, (laughs) he may have been fulfilling ancient Hebrew prophecy without even knowing. See, Jesus said this of himself, Revelation 3.7, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He's the key. But I want you to see what happens. Look at chapter 44, verse 1. It says, Then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces the east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Isn't that great? Suleiman goes, hey, let's close that off. Let's keep the king out. God said 2,000 years before, 
Yeah, he's going to do exactly what I want him to do. I want it shut. I don't want anybody going in through that gate. Thank you, Suleiman, for doing exactly what I said would happen, that the gate itself would be shut. Why was it shut? Because the Lord God had entered by it. Jesus had entered by it in His triumphal entry. And God said, that's enough. And later on, His glory will enter by it again. So God says, I want it shut. I don't want it... You know, it almost got violated in 1917 when General Allenby led his British troops to Jerusalem and the plans were all prepared and laid out in conquering in World War I that he was going to ride his horse through the Eastern Gate. They were going to set charges, blow it open, he was going to ride in and pronounce you know, that they now were conquerors of Jerusalem. And it didn't happen. Someone apparently pointed out to General Allenby this passage. And so he came in by another way. <laughs> it shall be shut. There is only one who has the right to enter through the Eastern Gate. Who will ever, even in the Millennial Kingdom, you realize... In Solomon's day, people came in through the eastern gate. That was the primary entrance to the temple complex. In the millennial kingdom, only one will enter through the eastern gate. Only one, the prince, Jesus Christ. And he'll hang out in the gate, and he'll be able to sit there, and he'll have his lunch there. But only Jesus will come in and out the eastern gate, the golden gate, the gate of the entrance of the glory of God.